When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 112. We're recording on Friday, June 26th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Happy Friday. Well, I've got, let's see, today's the 26th, I've got four. Mm -hmm. I've got 18 days, uh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe 21 days before my prediction that Go Sell a Watchman would outsell Gray really, really officially craps the bed. It's not looking good here, Shinsky. It's not looking good, and we've got those numbers I'm just, later I, on in the show. People are actively calling me out on Twitter now for how bad of a <laughs> guess that was. McLean, I Sarah love... McLean, not to name any <laughs> mm-hmm. names. <laughs> not, um, to, not to name any names, but yeah. hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Especially got, in, 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 in a good way, in a, in a gentle way mm-hmm. that just only made me feel sort of terrible. I mean, uh, I do love to be right, but this is the thing I'm going to be a little sad about being right about. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's you take it as it comes there, but uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm watching these gray numbers, and it's not, it's not looking mm. good for my. We'll get to those in a second. It's really but. not. We will get to those in a second. First, we have sad news. Do we want to do? Let's um, do our follow up first, because then we'll do our okay. ad, and then we'll do because we got to talk about the sad news for. A we minute. do, we do. So our follow up news, and this is actually by way of our uh, our friend and friend of the show, Sarah McLean, who is a, um, if you have been following Book Riot in any capacity for uh, any amount of time now, you know we love her romance novels. Uh, If you're looking for a place to start with romance, we're going to tell you to start with her. Um, And last week, we were wondering about uh, publishing imprints that focused on exclusively stories by and about uh, people of color. And she let me know this week that Harlequin has an imprint called Kimani, K-I-M-A-N-I. That's a a romance imprint exclusively by and about uh, people of color. She, um, She's just pointed me in that direction, and I did a little digging around. I couldn't find much like advertising or commercial focus on it, so that's interesting that it's a thing that exists that um, that you know we wondered about on a show that several thousand people listened to, and we only heard about one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder how many more of those exist if they do, or um, why or why not publishers are putting money behind them. But if you are looking for romance uh, that focuses on POC writers and characters, you can check out Kimani from Harlequin. And thank you, Sarah, for the info. Um, and this is also going to be the, the world's least properly sourced follow-up. Someone else on Twitter mentioned that there is a uh, British imprint, or maybe even an independent publisher that only publishes women already. That's that's part oh, of their charter. I can go back through my mentions, and maybe if I can find it, I'll put in the show notes there. But we did get some feedback. I mean, it's not like we got a, a tidal wave of uh, counterexamples, but there's a couple out there mm-hmm. that are worth talking about. Okay, let's do our first sponsor. So let's say you were going to do like a podcast or a website or an online gallery or portfolio or resume, or say you've got a small business or a new restaurant, or just you want to put some pictures up for your friends and family to put on, uh, to, to take a look at so that, you know, it's not in Facebook or somewhere else, but you get to control over it. You can name your own domain. There's a lot of ways that we use the internet these days. And the central problem you have when you're trying to do a project on the internet is where are you going to put it? You're not going to, you can't really live on Twitter. That's the social media. Can't really do it. That's the easiest thing. And most of us interact through the internet that way. But if you want your own sort of station destination to make something online, that's a problem, except that it's not a problem because we've got this thing called Squarespace. Squarespace is the easy way to make a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas, your projects, uh, your passions, an elegant interface, really great template. So out of the box, you've got something that looks great, even just as is, looks wonderful, and you can tweak it as much as you want from there. 
incredible 24-7 customer support, which if you are not a programmer and not a developer, and you and I are definitely not those things, oh, um, for sure. you can get some help to figure out why the picture's not showing up right, or why the font's all messed up, or why my Twitter feed that I want to embed isn't working out. Anytime, night or day, you can get great, real human customer support. So right, we'll tell you more about it, but if, you, if that's enough, you're sold already. I already drapered you. Go to squarespace.com and offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. That has, that has double meaning to get drapered, I just realized as I said that. Uh, <laughs> so here's a couple of things. $8 a month, and if you sign up for a whole year, that's 12 months, if you're not sure, if you, you, know, you wonder sometimes how many months are in a year, you'll get a free domain. So you can get getdraper.net. And that'll be yours for, you know, you can make that your website. Responsive design. You can do whatever you want. Whatever you want on there. This is the internet. Uh, So your website scales to look great on any device. So, you know, one thing we found with BookRite itself, especially as it's grown up, is so many people read the site on so many different size devices, you know, all the way down from really a four inch uh, iPhone 4, I guess, or 4S, all the way. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, five. A five, I guess, is four inch. A small phone. Small phone. I got it hung up in the details there. (laughs) Um, All the way up to this giant 36 inch monitor I'm looking at right now because my laptop screen is broken. I'm using our our bedroom TV as my monitor. That's a pretty, I I wonder how many iPhone finds I could fit on here. Probably, I seriously could probably fit 40 of them on here. So you can see the problem. If you're not a designer, even if you are, it creates a huge problem. But with these templates, one thing they do is they make sure that they auto-size so the, your website will know what kind of device is taking a look at it and can uh, make itself uh, uh, beautiful. It's kind of the opposite of a boggart. You know, Harry Potter makes it the scariest thing imaginable, depending on the person. Depending on the person here, it would make it the most attractive uh, thing available. So no credit card trial required. Another thing we love about Squarespace, you can try 14 days free all you need is an email address. So you don't have one of these situations where you sign up for a free trial and then you forget and then you get charged and it's like months go by and suddenly you've paid $60 for a, for a, you know, a, a, a Cinemax uh, subscription that you didn't really want but you just wanted to get the free trial for. Thank you so much to Squarespace for the support of Book Riot. Squarespace.com. Enter the offer code RIOT to get 10% off your order. All right. Man, well, that just has me thinking about the graveyard of unused URLs that oh, I own. Oh, <laughs> hey, I know, I know, I know, I know. And well, look, most of my old blogspot, terrible blogspot, free domains, I think they're just squatting oh. there. Uh, we do have sad news to get out of the way. Um, well, I, I, I'd say one of our mutual favorite writers. Yes. In the pantheon, this is of, definitely in the pantheon the, of O'Neill Shinsky shared Rushmore writers. Mm-hmm. We've got the Venn diagram. Salter and Morrison and Robinson, Robinson. right? And uh, mm-hmm. we're sorry to report That's that our trifecta. James Salter passed away this week uh, at the age of 90. Um, I, I don't know. I didn't see if there's anything about his, any particular cause. Uh, he's a relatively private guy. But I, did you see what the what the reason, cause of death was? I, I did not see the yeah. cause of death. His wife said, his wife Kay said that he had been at a, um, at a physical therapy session mm. um, in the piece that, a few of the pieces that I read, but they didn't say exactly right. what had happened. So it doesn't um, sound like he'd author. been sick. Uh, so maybe a heart attack or stroke. The most mm-hmm, or an injury perhaps. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, with unexpected so, uh, complications. So he was the author of six novels. Two yeah. collections of short fiction, a book of poetry, a memoir. He wrote a bunch of travel writing that was later collected. He and his wife uh, wrote a book together called Life is Meals. That's one of the best uh, works of food nonfiction that I've read. He wrote screenplays. Um, so one of the most diverse and I think underrecognized contemporary American writers. Man, this is a this one hit me right in yeah. the feels. Sort of. I mean, you knew he was older, so it's not a huge surprise. Um, but the last book had come out a couple years ago, um, which I can't, all that is, all that is, I was like that, mm-hmm. uh, the way it is, what I kept coming in my head. <laughs> and so I was maybe thinking maybe there'd be another one we could get, you know, maybe he was still, cause he was apparently writing mm-hmm. up, you know, uh, this isn't an old manuscript that, it, you know, he'd been working on for a while, though he did tend to work slowly. Um, six novels, short stories, memoir, not a whole lot for his, you know, the 50 years of writing, you know, described as a writer's writer, which was it you that was asking online or someone else was asking, or maybe it was Amanda um, saying, no, you, yeah, is that a code for something? One of our contributors was oh, asking right. about it. And I was saying, um, I think it's code for this person has mastered the craft, but never got the mm. full commercial recognition. So you wouldn't say that like, 
because don't you think that Alice Moore is a writer's, uh, excuse me, Alice Monroe is a writer's writer? Yeah. And she's got a Nobel. Uh, that's true. She does have a Nobel, but she's also not like a household name yeah. famous, you know. Oh, we have to be household name famous. So we can't. Well, maybe not. But, you know, like like Morrison is an incredible writer, but Toni Morrison is not a writer's writer. For Toni why? Morrison is hugely that like huge recognition, that like yeah. sort of commercial success. I think I really feel like that's kind of what writer's writer comes in as code. I think it for, also comes is, in like, for sort of apolitical. That's the other thing I yeah, keep coming back and, to. Like Salter's, it, it baffles me because his work is so beautiful and the themes yeah. of his stories are pretty universally relatable. He writes about work and relationships and very, what I have most loved about his fiction is that he looks directly at these very human, very complex and not always lovely things mm -hmm. that we do in our own lives and that we do to the people that we care about. And he doesn't judge them. He just puts them out. Yeah. Um, and it was a wonderful observer of uh, relationships and culture and it's the kind of stuff that other fiction that explores the same things and it's very accessible he wasn't you know difficult to read at all um he could have been he could have been you know an oprah pick and he never was yeah it's interesting that i hadn't really thought until you said that very last thing because he is you know we kind of make fun of literary fiction as being the domain in in a caricature but also kind of a real way of like male white agita right that's kind mm -hmm. of the in at the worst kind of literary or the the least interesting kind of literary fiction is that. And Salter, though, is the, the other side of that coin, which he's kind of the most interesting version of that same kind of topic. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. his character, his main characters are, are, I think, exclusively white men, though there are women that that play, you know, important roles, but they're not the main character. Um, but, you know, the thing I do like about Salter and, and you're kind of circling my own feeling about it is like. He recognizes both sort of the the pain and brokenness, but also the kind of dignity and beauty of sort of daily life. Like, yes, it's not it's not all awesome. It's also not all terrible, which, you know, that seems to me a kind of golden mean of um, trying to approach how the world is put together. Um, you know, an unbelievable master of the sentence, uh, um, just completely seamless writing um, in a way so that's... It's it's very difficult to describe, um, except that your eye like never stops, you know, you, you never then, hit a false note. It's really remarkable. And it's, I've, I've always felt completely consumed by his books while reading them. Not in the, not in that detached way of like, oh, this is wonderful literature where you just see that something is put together. Well, he was really a master of storytelling also. And so it's a, a beautifully told and the sentences will make you pause and catch your breath and want to soak them in. Mm -hmm. um, but the characters and what they think about their lives, not much really happens in Salter's fiction. It's very much the internal lives of his characters, but that is fascinating. And that's difficult to do in a way that's not annoying or narcissistic or, you know, yeah. the navel gazy literary fiction stuff like you're talking about that, that we rag on about white male agita. Um, it's also not first person, which, you know, <laughs> right, also sometimes is its own worst enemy in that navel gazy kind of way. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Light years is about a, marriage that is slowly crumbling and we see both uh, the husband and the wife's perspectives over several years and that mo it moves between the beautiful moments they have together and the really painful broken moments they have together and how those are interwoven you know there's not just like a good time and then a breaking point and then a bad time um i'm just so i'm so sad i wrote so a sad. Um, I wrote a chapter about James Salter for our uh, our second Start Here book that we published a few years ago. And so we ran that as a reading pathway on the site this week. Um, if you've not read James Salter and you're wondering where to start and how to get into him, uh, we can put the link in the show notes there or either of us will happily talk to you about which ones to read and when. Um, do you have a favorite, Salter? Well, I was, I've got your reading pathways open in front of me. This is exactly mm -hmm. how I would have written it myself, I think. Uh, it's also chronological. So unlike some of the Start Here chapters we did, it starts with The Hunters in 56 and then Sport and a Pastime, which is 1967, Light Years 75, and then all that is 2013. A favorite? I don't know. Um... Since there aren't Talk that, to me about your Salter memories. There aren't Jeff. that many. There aren't there aren't so many that you really have to pick and choose with the novels. Like you can, uh, you can sort of have them all. You know, they, I feel like they are of a piece somehow. Like they fit together in a way. Um, yeah, I 
I wrote it in chronological order because I feel like he's one of those writers that seeing the progression matters. Yeah, it does. And even though he doesn't sort of have a, uh, you know, a rabbit character like Updike or uh, uh, what's Roth's character? Oh, I can't, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, I can't remember um, the name. Oh, no. Uh, Zuckerman. <laughs> like, Zuckerman. Yeah. Um, the, but it does feel like a sensibility moving through time, you know, a central mm-hmm. narrative sensibility. I think for myself, I think I'd go with the Hunters. Um, both it's it's about Korean uh, Korean War uh, Air Force pilots, dogfighters. Which as a kid, I loved planes, um, and my family was in the Navy and lots of planes and maritime aviation stuff. So I was always into that. But it also is the clearest sort of connection back to his most direct um, progenitor, which is Hemingway, uh, which is this sort of masculine, beautiful, violent, also flawed and insufficient kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. So that one I feel like is a linchpin towards the past. Um, The one I've recommended most often, though, is a sport and a pastime. It's probably the loveliest and the most meditative um, and then as you grow up, like as I'm older, I think I, you know, uh, the, 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 all that is now, mm-hmm. I think my, you know, so I don't know, it kind of depends on your mood. Um, the one before that 79 solo faces is about rock climbing, uh, in the, the French Alps, which is also really beautiful and interesting. So I, that's a way of saying, I don't know. I, that's, did you get that? <laughs> I don't know. I was sort of talking around it. Um, I think if you're going to read one, even though, like, I've thought about this with these start here things too. This is like, if you want to get into an author, like you're willing to commit to three or four books, which is a little bit different than if you're just going to read one, right? Because if mm-hmm. we did that, we wouldn't necessarily pick the one. Would you pick the hunters if yeah. you told someone just read one? What no, would you do? I think if you're just going to read one, I would actually say to go with all that is. Yeah, it that's felt fair. to me like it had... It, the book has all of the Salter hallmarks. It has the incredible sentences. It has these fully realized characters, including the supporting cast. Everyone in this world is real. You feel like you would know them if you met them at the bar. Um, Salter, I think, has a really singular way of writing about sex and relationships. Yes. And A Sport and a Pastime is the biggest example of that and like the steamiest book I have ever read. Um but that's present in all that is as well. And then these like hit you where you live insights about life and relationships and work. Um, all that is follows a character's life um, for like six decades from World War II up through a career in publishing. So it's also kind of a love letter to the world of books. Um, oh, here's my favorite quote from it since I'm looking at my uh, reading yes. pathway. Uh, he wrote uh, of the character. He liked to read with the silence and the golden color of the whiskey as his companions. He liked food, people, talk, but reading was an inexhaustible pleasure. What the joys of music were to others, words on a page were to him. Uh, man, James Salter. I'm going to miss him. James Salter. All right. So James Salter, 90 years old. Um, if you find, your, find it in yourself this summer to pick up Salter, a sport and a pastime. Is a really great summer read, especially if you're traveling through Europe. Uh, I would recommend, (laughs) especially. Well, we have the books. We have the books. Have you read them all? Do you have anything left that you haven't read in the corpus? No, I did. I saved some. Um, I saved Dusk and other Uh stories, and I saved. Oh, there's one more. Oh, I haven't read Solo Faces. Oh, well, that's two. I mean, neither neither of them are going to like crack your top three favorites, but I think Solo Faces. You know, writing about sports is tough. To make interesting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in my opinion, um, but that one is especially good. Dusk, was, Dusk and Other Stories is the first one I read, and I remember picking it up because I had only been in New York for a little while um, when I moved to, to New York in 2000, and I was poking around the, uh, the basement of the Strand where they keep all the remainders and, like, excess mm-hmm. inventory, and mm-hmm. I was just, you know, I, I was in grad school and I had nothing but time, so I went through, like, every single one, and I picked out this one because I liked the cover, to be honest with you. I'd never heard of James Salter to this point. And there was a blurb on it from somebody, and I, I should pull it off my shelf. There was a blurb on it that was something like, it was one of these masters of the craft that you've never heard of sort of thing, the kind of things we're saying and have heard people say since he passed away this week. And I picked it up and I was like, what the, what is this? Like, <laughs> And uh, then I read The Hunters next and I immediately gave it to my dad. 
Um, and he loved it. And from there, I was off to the races with Salter. So I have a very distinct member of picking up. Oh. Dusk is a very slim volume. There's only yeah, like eight tiny. short stories in there, mm-hmm. I think. And in hardback, it makes it feel a little more substantial. But in a paperback, it's a very, you know, uh, slight volume. So it's something yeah, that could I, easily look over. I bought all the Salters that I hadn't yet read a couple summers ago when I knew I was going to write the chapter. And I had like, I think it was the summer of 2013. I had the summer of Salter and I read as many of them as I could to write the reading pathway. But I, I think you and I even had a conversation at some point about saving some just in case. Yeah. Because um, he was in his late 80s when all that is came out. And it did feel like a culmination of a career right. kind of novel. And so I took Dusk off my shelf on Friday with the intention of reading it over the weekend. And I could <laughs> I'm just going to hold on to it a little longer. Um, I came to Salter by way of John Irving. Um, I was, I don't even remember which John Irving book it was, but several years ago, probably like six or eight years ago, I was reading a John Irving novel in which, and John Irving does his own stuff with sex, um, in which (laughs) one of the The biggest (laughs) understatement yet to be recorded on the podcast. Anyway, sorry. Mark it. Yeah, mark it. Uh, We could do a whole hour long show about that. Um, in which one of the characters refers to a sport and a pastime a whole bunch. And I was like, well, oh. I have to know what this is. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so I picked it up and okay. that was, I, it was, oh, it was like, it what would have been eight or nine years ago. Cause I read it on my honeymoon, uh, which I, I, I knew nothing about what the book was about, but it turned out to be like, a, that's a perfect aligning of the literary and life universe. When you read a sport and a pastime on your honeymoon. Yeah. Though it has his own twist at the end. Anyway, we'll not give yeah. it away. Um, we won't give it away anyway. Well, it's a good chance to talk about Salter for a while though. I don't love the reason. Um, but you know, I, I hope other people pick him up. I hope if we can convince a few people to pick him up, maybe, you know, maybe it'll be kind of like uh, John Williams and Stoner that kind of has a long afterlife. Um, with that would sport be so wonderful. Okay. Now on to even sadder news is that I'm wrong about something. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to, we're going to keep track of this as much as we get information for, but we got the first round of sales data on gray, the, the fourth book in the 50 shades series, I guess, which is the mm-hmm. retelling. No of longer the fr- a trilogy. No longer a trilogy. It's a retelling of the first book from um, Christian's point of view, the, the male protagonist. Um, and it sold, let's see, let me get these numbers right. In the first four days, it sold 1.1 million copies. Um, that's print and eBooks. And mm-hmm. as of Friday, let's see, is that right? It was as of... Um, as of... Because it came out on Tuesday. On the, Monday. Oh, Thursday Monday. the 18th. As of Monday, there were 2 million copies in print. So, so that's a lot. <laughs> it's, it was Amazon's most pre-ordered ebook, ebook of, all time. of the year. Um, Though its most pre-ordered print book of the year is... Is Go Set, Go a, Set Watchman. a Watchman. Yeah, okay. Which... Uh, that's also really interesting. We were we talked when the announcement came out a few weeks ago that fifty that the new gray book was the same price for print right. and ebook, and we were wondering what that would do. Yeah. And uh, romance readers were some of the earliest adopters of digital reading, so I kind of expected to see the ebook uh, sales for gray exceed the print sales. Um, it's interesting that they did that, even though the print book was the same price as the ebook. Um, maybe people want go set a watchman in print more than they want it digitally, or you've got older readers or whatever um, that uh, are preferring print. But yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be so right about this, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. There's already 2.1 million in print and it's in its fifth printing. And the initial print run of Ghost of the Watchmen is 2 million copies. Interesting, I can reveal just, um, so we have Amazon affiliate links on the site. Uh, Some Mm -hmm. some of you may know that, some of you don't. And every time someone clicks through and if they buy anything, we get a percentage of the sale. It's one of the ways we support the site anyway. But it shows us what people have bought. It doesn't show us who bought what, just that like here are the things people bought. And the the breakdown for Book Riot readers, we sold several hundred copies of of Grey, was like two to one print. Which I thought was just unusual. Maybe, maybe the harder core book nerds that read Book Riot like print a little bit better, um, and the more casual reader who has a Kindle or a phone, they pick it up right there. Um, I think that's interesting. You know, mm-hmm. also one of those things where it has such. You know, it's. I was musing on Twitter. I think yesterday that's like I don't know if they've ever heard of a more review-proof book than Gray. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, because it's gotten slaughtered. I mean, in ways it that are both good. Slaughtered. I mean, in ways that are fair and unfair, it seems to me. But that's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But like, no one's. I mean, it's not. It, it doesn't seem to me to be. From what I've heard, I haven't read it. Um, worse, quote no, unquote, than the yeah. original three books. There was no question that it was going to sell. Oh. Um, no. At all. Though and Sarah McLean didn't sell as much as she thought. She was throwing Potter numbers at me. I was like, you got to no. be crazy. She had those like 11 million books in a day. Like that, that just get out of here. I'm going to have to give up my chair one week and have Sarah on with you so you guys can just fight yeah. voice, with your voices for the world to enjoy. Right. Well, see, um, I'm trying to put it all on her so that when you're right, it doesn't, you don't get as much. Do you see oh, what I'm doing here? Oh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff, that's not going to work. It works also if I say that's what I'm doing. That's how strategy <laughs> works. That's how surprise works. It's not like I've ever seen through your no, strategy no, no, before. No, I've never seen through my uh, elaborate, <laughs> um, elaborate coke of subterfuge. Yeah, there's been so like all the predictable predictableness about the reception of this book in all the ways that are funny to watch and that are maddening to watch. Yeah. Um, it's it is review proof. There was no question it was going to sell. This thing's going to help keep Random House and mm-hmm. bookstores in business. And that was an interesting point that I saw a lot of people make this week, sort of in response to some of the meaner criticism. Was we need to talk about how this how Fifty Shades of Grey helped bookstores stay open right. in 2012. Yeah. Um, and that is n- not an overstatement, and it's not insignificant. Uh, the sales of this book really made a difference in the industry. I think that that's one of the hinging points for Ghost at a Watchman. Like if it comes out and is poorly reviewed. Will it matter? I think it will. It might matter. I think like, I think it will. The first round of people that are going to read it no matter what, you know, like the diehard book nerds and the To Kill a Mockingbird fans probably ordered their copies already and they'll read it in that those first weeks and first month after release. But if word gets out that it's a dud. Yeah. My only hope here, um, where are those straws? I need a clutch at them real quick. Where do they put those? Uh, <laughs> Would you like my pearls yeah, too? Yeah, you can clutch uh, some pearls. Some stra- my only hope is that the hot sales of Grey is the super fans went to the went to the buy button, and mm. everyone else doesn't care. Like, you and know, that it's of, not going to have that it, long. It's tail not going to have much of a long tail. People are like, eh, there's not much there. There's not much juicy stuff. So the sort of the casual gray reader, because I, I did say in the, it, one of the previous shows that the sales of the trilogy tapered off. Like people, a lot of people didn't read all three books. Not everyone who read the first one read the three, um, the all three. So my 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 thing is maybe it's like a big anticipated blockbuster that comes out but it's like kind of terrible and no one turns out to be interested and so like it falls off a cliff after the first few days. Maybe. Now, I don't maybe think that's that going to happen. Maybe that cliff might be there. My and then the Fifth other printing the, already. the other the other part would be that Ghost at a Watchman is like super interesting. And it sells a bunch and that through the holidays people are talking about how it's really great and I loved it because you know it's like gives you information that you didn't have. Um, from To Kill a Mockingbird. That's that's what remains on the board for me, though. It's a little bit like um, setting up a play for a half-court shot to tie the game at the buzzer. But you know what? I, there's time on the clock still. There's time on the clock. You can you can hold on. To I'm, I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold on. <laughs> I will say, since we're having the Sarah McLean love hour, yeah. um, she reviewed Gray for the Washington Post in what I thought was a very thoughtful, very thoughtful review. Um, and review that's the kind of review that you want for readers that really helps a reader assess whether they're going to want to read the book or not. Uh, and she determined that Grey was really for like the diehard Fifty Shades of Grey fan only. That if you were like a casual fan See, that's or what I'm you were just for. sort of interested. So Sarah is is agreeing with you there. Um, well, I, I don't have an opinion. 50, that was just my hope for yeah. winning my bet. Like, I, I mean, yeah, honestly, I, I still think care. this year in the calendar year of 2015 that Grey is going to outsell Ghost of Watchmen. Yeah, I'm, you're probably I'm right. holding on. You're probably right. Um, speaking of, well, I, this feels really, I don't know. I don't have a good segue. I'm, I'm so sorry, but I guess uh, Ongoing new, stories install, about beloved in new, new installments and in beloved franchises. This one came out of nowhere to me. I, had you heard about this before? I had not. No. So apparently there's going to be a new Harry Potter play coming out next summer. You heard that right. That's a play mm-hmm. that uh, JK herself authorized. And I guess she wrote the story for, but she has she didn't write the the stage play. Um, it's being put on in London starting next summer. It's called Harry Potter and the Cursed. Uh, my page is child. the Cursed Child. 
and it is weird. It's she describes it not as a pre- she says it's not a prequel. She said on Twitter it's not a prequel, but it's about James and Lily Potter before they're killed by Voldemort. So I don't know how that's not a prequel. But uh, do you under do you, can you parse that for I, me? How does that work? I I guess no. I can't parse it without knowing how she defines prequel. Because wait, doesn't is the there story, another way to define? I mean, maybe I, there is. I just well, hadn't thought about. That. I mean, I feel like she must be working from a different definition of prequel than I'm working from. Because to me, <laughs> right. <a> story about <laughs> characters that takes place before the story that yeah. we all know <laughs> is a prequel, and it, it will provide new information about his par- about Harry's parents and about their lives before Voldemort. And like, how is that not a how is it not a prequel? I don't understand. Um, also, is it a weird thing? I'm interested in this. She, and she said that, like, uh, she she thinks that people who see the play will agree that it was the only proper medium for the story. Yeah, weird. Interesting. So like, odd. What, what could how, they do that would say, yeah, how, this should have been a play. Totally right. Bang on. Instead of a movie? like Or a wh- book. Wh- or a book. Yeah. Um. Uh. But it's uh, she was not lying when she said that she didn't want to leave the world of Harry Potter. No, I guess the the thing I can think about is she's she's got a lot of uh, irons in the fire now. She's writing the Newt Scamander trilogy from all I think we know it's three mm-hmm. movies, mm-hmm. Um, and she wants to do another story I guess here, but she doesn't want movies take forever, and she doesn't want to write another novel. So here's another medium that she can tell another Harry Potter story without having to write it herself. Or have the super long um, lead time of a movie, so that that because it can do it in a year. Still, the possibility that it could be adapted into a movie if it sure. goes really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Here's interesting book sales reminders: the seven books in the Harry Potter series have sold over oh. 450 million copies total. Man, oh so, man! <laughs> 450 wow. million. It's going to happen. You know what? We're going to wake up one of these days and we're going to get the Harry Potter 8 news. Don't you think? Like, it may not be Someday. tomorrow, but like, she's just... And it's going to be, it's going to be flipped from Hermione's perspective. <laughs> See, I don't want that. I, well, if it's a new... I want a news... I don't care what you, you want. want I, yeah, I know you don't care. But I'm just saying, like, she keeps doing the Pottermore stuff and we get dribs and drabs of, like, filling in why the Dursleys hate Harry and... What color braces Draco had as a, you know, like all these like weird things. Like she's clearly still like in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of these she, days her, we're going to get, it's like in three years, I've been working on it and it's the story of and Hermione and Ron uh, fighting the mer people or, you know, who, whatever it is going to be. <laughs> we're going to, it's going to happen. years. Yeah. I don't, I I don't rather, know the pedagogical know. trajectory of the wizarding. Is there a college you go somewhere after Hogwarts? I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, don't know. Uh, I would actually, I would rather read something else set in Hogwarts that's shifted perspective. I want the Hermione point of view yeah, okay. story more than, more than I want like late adolescent, you know, angsty early adult. Yeah. yeah I, don't, I just don't. I think, but all I'm saying is there's going to be a new one set after yes. the timeline Some of the Deathly Hallows. And it's, you know, there's too much, uh, she's, her neurons are firing too much about it for this to be, for it to be over. Cause it's clearly not, she can't, she either can't leave it alone or doesn't want to leave it alone. There's just, she, there's just too much cooking and people want it, man. You talk about, you talk about a book that's going to sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I would pay to just read her like bad ideas journal. That's interesting. You know? Very interesting. <laughs> I would, or if she would just write a, a JK Rowling memoir is a thing that would be so mm. interesting and something about like on the way to doing the Newt Scamander movies and, this play and to writing the mysteries that she's written and to taking on the, um, the pseudonym that she took on, which I can't for the life of me remember right now for, yes, the Robert Galbraith, um, books. Like what are the, what are the bad ideas that she's not putting out into the world? Cause we're seeing like, you know, we're seeing good, interesting stuff and she clearly can't let it go. Um, but she I must just, just work know. like a dog. You know, like when it's Friday afternoon and J.K. Rowling is on Slack with her editors. Mm. <laughs> what are they? What yeah. are they like? What if we did this? Wait, no, that's terrible. What if we did this other thing? That's also terrible. Yeah, I feel like she's got that Stephen King thing of just being like a story machine. Just like mm-hmm. it's just bursting out of her. Like she needs to be a pseudonym and she has to people do plays. And like there's Pottermore. You know she can't doing. help but write more Harry Potter stuff or Pottermore. She's Poking at the adjacent possible. Oh, poking at it. She's tearing mm-hmm. that sucker down, boy. 
uh, <laughs> rolling Omnimedia. <laughs> I'm a little so. I mean, she must. She must have very strong opinions because you know every TV show and every TV place in the world would put on a Hogwarts hour long drama or something. Mm-hmm. Like she just she must be saying no all the time. Which is also really oh, interesting. Oh, she must be. Just all the I'm time. I'm sure that other people bring their bad ideas to her all the time, too. Oh, and probably yeah. some good ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, anyway, wait, wait to do another sponsor. Should we do another sponsor? We, we're going yeah, on we and on here. we probably should. Yeah, we probably should. What do we got next? We've got Random House Audio is back yeah, uh, this week just in time uh, for the 4th of July holiday here in the United States for summer road trips, vacations, Maybe you just need to walk the dog or mm-hmm. work in your garden or cook. Or I know you just turn on audiobooks when you have like five minutes around the house to get something done. You can listen while you're doing your hobbies, while you're working. This is just one more way that you can get a book into your brain during your daily life, especially while you're multitasking. Random House Audio has every type of audiobook. Uh, they have perfect pairings listed on the site for activities like gardening, cooking, exercising, crafting, traveling. The Girl on the Train was a big, humongous book uh, earlier this year, and they've got audio available of that. They have so, so many. And there's a cool tool at tryaudiobooks.com where you can put in uh, the length of the audiobook you're looking for and what kind of audiobook, like what genre you want, and it'll pop out some recommendations and also some free audiobooks that you can give a shot to. They're running uh, great giveaways on uh, tryaudiobooks.com all summer as well. For the month of June, they have uh, the Book of Joan by Melissa Rivers, I Take You by Eliza Kennedy, The Rocks by Peter Nichols, uh, which is a novel that I've seen a ton of Hmm. buzz just starting to bubble up for, The Little Paris Bookshop by Nina George, and Ever After by Jude Devereaux. Uh, That was all things to listen to while you craft. Uh, In July, it's going to be things to listen to while you cook. Ah. Um, Skinny, yes, Skinny Habits by Bob Harper and Greg Kritzer. The Good Gut, man, gut should just not be in any yeah, cooking I don't, related I don't love titles. That. Yeah, uh, sorry, Random House Audio. Uh, in the Unlikely Event by Judy Bloom, which is her new adult novel that came out. Adult like written for adults, mm-hmm. not like erotica. Judy Bloom erotica is a thing I would be curious about, though, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> Maybe not interested, but curious. Uh, The Truth According to Us by Annie Barrows and Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Straddle. So you can check out tryaudiobooks.com for these giveaways, more great titles, all kinds of ideas about when to listen to audiobooks in your daily life and which audiobooks to pick out. And uh, thank you to Random House Audio for sponsoring this week. Thank you so much to them for uh, sponsoring this week. Okay, where are we going next? Where are we going next? Where do you want to go? Amazon Reviews. This is interesting to me. Interesting. Okay, so why do you think it's interesting? So Amazon reviews are going to be overhauled with the help of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked before on the show, and it's been talked about widely on the internet, that like one third of all consumer reviews on everything are um, presumed to be fake, fake by lots of you know major research. Um, and there have been some scandals in publishing about uh, authors and publishers buying Amazon reviews. So Amazon is trying to figure out how to make their customer review system helpful to consumers again. Uh, And one of the updates, which they've already begun to roll out, um, asks, basically uses an artificial intelligence algorithm that takes the best reviews um, to be considered as those that were written recently by people who purchased the product from Amazon. So like Amazon has verified the purchase um, and the reviewers who are frequently cited as helpful by Amazon users. Those, the reviews that are that meet those criteria are going to be given greater weight in the item's overall star rating where previously the star ratings were just an average of all reviews. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to identify basically the most the, the reviews that are the most likely to be reliable and accurate and give those more weight um, since they're, they have not so far been successful in weeding out all of the fake reviews. Right. Uh, I'm interested. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I guess it'll, it depends on what the outcome looks like. Um, Probably they'll get, yeah, yeah. they'll probably get more, they'll probably get a lot of bad ones out of there. I mean, and, and like all algorithms, they're going to throw out some good data. Um, but mm-hmm. in general, I'm sure it'll be uh, an improvement. I guess, I, do you ever read them? Do you ever read Amazon reviews? 
I don't, but I like this is like my dirty secret uh-huh. of being a, an internet book person is I don't really read anyone's yeah, book reviews. Like, I, yeah, I, can I try to. That. I try to go into the books I'm reading pretty blind to what the book is about. So like once a few people that I trust say that they like a title, I try to not know anything else about the title, but just to pick it up. But I have used Amazon's consumer reviews for other for stuff. Like vacuums and humidifiers and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I find that more helpful than the book reviews myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I've never really found... I guess what I'm saying is like, I, it's one of those problems that I, I'm sure is a real problem, but I don't feel like I feel it that much because I do the same thing. I'm looking for a new keyboard or a blender or a toaster or whatever. You know, Michelle and I will go look the reviews and you kind of look at the overall star rating, the number of reviews and sort of the most helpful and the most critical. And I feel like I get a pretty good sense. I guess that's what I'm trying to say is like, mm-hmm. I'm not like, oh, great. Now I'm going to trust them more because I finally, I think I have it kind of figured out, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, but it is interesting that they're going to try to apply some machine learning to it. That, you know what could use this as a Goodreads? Mm-hmm. Because, like, yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe you want to know – because I've been thinking about this recently, too. Like, what do I want to know from a review? Like, I, I think however people want to star stuff on Goodreads is totally up to them. But, like, if someone gives something one star and they DNF'd it, that is different to me than if they gave it one star and they read the whole thing. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think totally. they're completely valid ways of responding. But for me, if I'm actually going to use Goodreads Review, which I use a lot more than Amazon, I want to know that difference, if that makes any kind of sense. Like, maybe different kinds of categorizations that it can pick up. Like, if it's one star, I don't know what's worse. Is it if it's a two and a half star book and there's a bunch of one star reviews and most of those are people who finished it versus people who didn't finish it? I just want that information for myself to be able to evaluate. I don't want Amazon trying to get get in between me and the good data. Yeah, I I do wish that Goodreads had a DNF like a way to highlight that yeah. so that star rate for like the thing that I would want would be for star ratings to be from people that finished the book. Right. And then to see like, you know, 200 people have rated this book because they finished it and here's the average star rating from that, but also 400 people DNF'd it. Right. Like that would be that would be useful information to know that okay, well only a third of the people who have read this book on Goodreads have finished it and rated it and they might have rated it however, but two thirds of the people have did not finish this book and that's useful information in and of itself. I also would um, like I, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say I think it's interesting. I think Amazon is responding to pressure from yeah. a bunch of industries um to appear more legitimate. Uh, and and to just try to weed out, you know, some of the crap in the reviews. The skeptical side of me is like, okay, yeah, but how long will it take before the people that are gaming the system figure out a way to game this one? It's like like SEO, you just pay, yeah. right? You just pay a bunch of people to go in and rate your review of your own book as helpful. <laughs> yeah, or you learn the magic words not to say so that people know you're a bot <laughs> right. or a plant or something else like yeah. that. The other one, the other so filter I like is people who mention the people that mention the price of the book. Uh-huh. Like, cause I, I don't really care to be honest. Like if someone's like, yeah, $10 for this book was too much. Uh, I just don't think in those it, terms. So it doesn't help yeah, me. I, and no one else can know what $10 means to you. Mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think that's useful information in a review either. Like I, I think a review of a book should be of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, if the author behaves badly and Goodreads did crack down on this. You can't uh, write about the author in the review of a book. You're just supposed to write about you review the contents, mm-hmm. not the creator. Um, I think that makes sense. Like uh, I was ranting on Twitter about a, about Janet Maslin's takedown of gray, Ugh, yeah. um, which is terrible. And I think a real disservice, it's a disservice to readers. And also there's no reason that a review needs to insult the readers it's of embarrassing for the times too. In my, that's it's my really, opinion. it's really gross. Yeah, it um, and someone, who follows me on Twitter said, oh, well, you know, we Fifty Shades of Grey fans are used to being kicked around. I was like, but you shouldn't have yeah, to be. So bad. Um, you shouldn't have to be used to being kicked around by like the publishing establishment because of what you choose to read anyway. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> like, well, I don't even know what we were talking about Well, we were just now. talking just about like, like reviews and what we want. And, like, yeah. I mean, <sighs> right. I think reviews should be a service to readers about what's in the book and to help you determine if this is a book you want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I gave this one star because it, it was too expensive or I gave this one star because I don't like the cover or whatever. Or like, it has that's DRM not, that's not or it was, it was Kindle only. Like there's a whole there's a whole suite of 
concerns that, again, people can decide whatever they want about a book for them. I don't care. I don't say it's the wrong way to review. Just in terms of someone who's looking for reviews as to make a purchase or reading commitment decision Mm -hmm. that, you know, I want something uh, a little bit different uh, out of that myself. So I don't know, like, I guess what it, maybe you could just tag things. If you could tag something DNF, you could tag it like price. There's a couple of things that give you more information just than a prose description of your rating and the rating itself, which is very difficult Mm to, uh, when I think people do do, do, um, like DNF shelves or DNF tagging on Goodreads, but, Oh, do they? I haven't looked at, but it's Mm -hmm. not built into like the review interface for each. No, it's not, it's not just part. It's not like a, before you review this book, tell us, did you actually finish it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was just realizing, I don't know why this popped into my head. This was a follow-up thing for us to do. We can move on from reviews. Uh Our, our beloved Chipotle cups, which are our, oh, yeah. our favorite, you know, I our sort that. of weird, our weird like obsession um, that Jonathan Saffron Foer was eating a burrito and decided <laughs> to like so weird and take on a project of putting literature on the side of burrito bags, uh, bags and uh, Chipotle cups. Y- uh, Yale's Beinecke Library, which is one of the great collections of American letters, has they have received a complete gift set <laughs> of the Cultivating Thought series. And they've what a accepted weird it. Time too. capsule moment. Does that mean it's over? I was wondering that too. Like, are we done with that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, um, I got Neil Gaiman's last time. Oh, did you? I haven't been in a while. I, I, did. I still need to roll the more. I need to. I can be done with it if I get I, the Morrison. I got the Morrison yeah. once. That was pretty exciting. I mean, I know what's on there, so it's not a big deal. Um, I'm looking at my notes because I didn't put these in the agenda, so I'm going to hit you with some weird ones. Sorry, real quick before okay. I get the rest. Did you see this thing about uh, German erotica? I did. This is I did. weird. I had it in our. I had it in the agenda, and then I was like, "Oh, I don't know if we want to talk about that." And no, I, I took just, it out, but I do so, want to talk it, about it. I do it. want to talk. It's weird. So uh, there's this old law apparently that treats ebooks like movies online. Uh, ebooks like movies. So this is in in uh, Deutschland over there. Online booksellers in Germany will get fined fifty six thousand dollars if they sell erotic books before ten p.m. It's so great. I wonder if that's gating gray uh, sales in Germany. Um, <laughs> or it's just, you know, there's like a surge of late night yeah. erotica purchases. Germany's federal department <laughs> so for media strange. harmful to young persons. They have a federal no. department for media. Harm- that's a very Orwellian sort of thing. Young persons don't know how to find yeah. sexy media after 10 p.m. on the Internet. It's also, no, they, no. it's also not an old law. Like it's not one of these like things where you can't ride a horse on Tuesdays when the moon is full type deals that the ebooks got thrown in with. Like this law was created in 2002 or, you know, like it's, it's a modern law. It's a really weird misunderstanding. Well, it's kind of modern, but like 2002 is a really long time ago in Internet years. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. But even if this was like physical a, books, it's relatively close. So yeah, like, oh, can you buy printed erotica know. before 10 p.m. in Germany? And how did it? I mean, that's, how do you do this? That's if you're interesting. Amazon? If you can, yeah, I don't know. Like the buy buttons like gray out because you can buy them 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So if you need your I, daily erotica like, and it gets like it's 5:50, I better get on there. Or like, does it process your purchase and then tell you it can't deliver you the book until 10 p.m.? Maybe, 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 maybe. This is fascinating. Very strange. Or maybe they just don't classify the books as erotica. Like, who determines what what falls under the purview of this law? Yeah. Um, There's just no erotica in Germany. Apparently there was this one book called uh, Schlausgelüste, or pantyhose cravings that the Google <laughs> Google Translate calls it hose lust. I am so glad so, that I am alive to hear you have to say yeah, that. Yeah, um, it's a one the one time where the German makes it sound more palatable. Actually, uh, this we do weird stuff. People are weird. This is such a weird. <laughs> It's such a weird law. You, this law was invented by like someone who was 102 at the time and did not understand digital media right. at all. Or like it had to have been. Or it's like the result of a of a compromise between someone who wants to ban it outright and someone's like, no, it's like, well, how about we just make it illegal <laughs> to sell it between 10 p.m. and 6 p.m. because everyone knows that kids go to bed, you know, right, you know, right at 10, you're going to get it. They're not going to buy it. Or like some German legislators kid got caught, you know, downloading sexy books in the middle of the day and they were looking for a dad. I was so tired. I didn't know what I was doing. I was so tired. It was 11 o'clock and I, you know, I thought it was 
I just bought uh, the complete Anais Nin. I have yeah. no idea. Oh, boy. So anyway, I just <laughs> Americans aren't the only ones weird about this stuff. What's weird is Germans are a little more permissive when it comes to, to sexual material. So I'm a little surprised that they have a prohibition on selling it between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. But, you know, y- you never know. Um, okay, mm-hmm. where, I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm lost. <laughs> oh, let's go down to this bookstore. Do you want to do that? Or what else did you oh, want yeah, to do? Did so you have, we have a couple other things over here, but let's see. Yeah, I've got. Uh, yeah, let's do the bookstore. Okay. There is a bookstore in Washington called Finally Found Books. It was founded in August of 2013, and it has been struggling since it was founded. So the owner of the bookstore, whose name is Todd Holbert, has decided to turn the bookstore into a nonprofit in order to keep it open. Mm-hmm. Uh, after many, this is a quote, after many months of investigating every conceivable option put forward by many supporters of the store, it was determined that the only viable long-term option to keep it alive was to set up a nonprofit and expand the many programs offered. There are so many benefits to doing so, not only to the store, but to many struggling bookstores across the nation. Uh, so the benefits that Holbert is talking about include that a nonprofit can raise money through grants and tax deductible donations. It can use uh, volunteers to take mm. on the roles that are historically paid employees mm. uh, because nothing says keep our industry alive by asking people to work for free. Uh, you can offer tax d- deductions for donated books. And apparently there were lots of volunteers who wanted to help help out with this effort. So they are offering to take on responsibilities in the business um, and to support literary programs. It sounds like this store has been doing some, you know, community focused programming that they want to be able to continue to provide. But I am real not excited about Mm. this man's suggestion that many bookstores across the nation would benefit from becoming nonprofits and should do so. Um, Mm. Yeah, I'm furrowing uh, my brow. My brow is furrowed. I guess what I keep coming, I mean, what I keep coming to is like a nonprofit bookstore is a library. Right. Where you, I mean, I guess the difference is you don't clearly get to keep the books, but to be a nonprofit, I don't know. Like, it's interesting. I guess why get so, a, a nonprofit to support reading and literacy, totally behind that. There's a lot of them. There's good work. We support a lot of them at book ride ourselves. Like that is not something I'm, but like why get so attached to that? It needs to be a bookstore. Like if that's the thing that doesn't, can't be supported, become a literary arts center or something else like that. Or, right. you know, become a, make, make your local library the best one in the whole tri-county area or something like, you know, I guess that's the part I don't understand. I, I don't really understand is what do we, I, I guess, is the core of what a bookstore does so important that we think, like so necessary to the greatness of the whatever, that it's a should be a nonprofit? I, that's the thing you I keep wanna, coming back to. Are you going to incite the wrath of the whatever of the, high the atop thing, the thing now? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what, what that, I'm getting to. Do you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I do. It kind of it dovetails with a thing that we were talking about on our back channel this morning. There was a, um, I think it was in the New Yorker, yes, um, an editorial in the New Yorker, um, where someone was again bemoaning the, e- the existence of ebooks and the value of bookstores, and saying that he he really believes that most book lovers um, see the indie bookstore as like the holy altar upon which literary lovers I got that far and I had to stop reading. I couldn't. Yeah, and that's like, (laughs) it's a beautiful dream, I guess, but three to six percent of all book sales come out of indie bookstores. So any suggestion that most book lovers think of indie bookstores as the place, like maybe in our Maybe in the sense that we love the notion of having bookstores in our community. Maybe we really like watching uh, You've Got Mail. And God knows I love an indie mm. bookstore. But but we can't assume, we can't state like a fact that most people <laughs> want indie bookstores because most people are not buying their books in a way that indicates they want indie bookstores to continue to exist and that, it, that, that it's necessary to have them. Like, I want them and I think they're they contribute to our communities and they do valuable things. But if books and reading couldn't survive without independent bookstores, mm. that would be a different story. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I keep coming back. Cause like I read that to that piece. And the thing that's, that strikes me is like clearly 
in terms of usage numbers, the, the altar is the library. Like I've recorded 31 episodes of Reading Lives now, and mm-hmm. virtually every single one of them, the origin story about being a reader is the library. Not all of them, but the ones that aren't about the library are not about an independent bookstore. It's about mom and dad shelves or a teacher. Like an independent bookstore is something that young readers graduate to in high school or college at the earliest. So I I, I think it's a nice to have, and they, they independent bookstores certainly perform an, in, an important role um, in the yes. publishing ecosystem. I don't want to deny that, but like I, I, it's kind of like the Patterson thing we talked about where he's giving grants to independent bookstores – like, I just feel like that money is better spent at libraries. Like, libraries are in virtually every community across the, the racial and ethnic and socioeconomic spectrum. Whereas independent bookstores... And you don't have to have money to spend yeah, to benefit and from buy, them. Independent bookstores are by and large in mostly affluent, mostly white neighborhoods. Um, which is, it's not bad necessarily, but if you're ascribing all of this value, sort of surplus... Value that's surplus of economics... I just wish much people would get fall in love with and write these rhapsodies that appear in the New Yorker to the smell of books. Write them about your library mm-hmm. instead of the bookstore that was founded three years ago and can't make it. Like, yeah. I get that it's hard, and I don't think they should have to close up shop or whatever they want to do. But if you're going to pivot to being a nonprofit and more of a literacy advocacy organization, like, just call it what it is. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. Th- that's kind of how I feel about it, to be honest. That was more articulate than I was, and I agree. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, <laughs> look, I hope if, if the community there, that they want to support it, like, that's up to them. But I'm thinking more of like an abstract level, like this idea that we that we wed, or no, we imbue independent bookstores with sort of um, almost like a public good kind of value. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that's displaced. Let's let's libraries be that, and then bookstores can be, you know, do what they do best. Um, and they should pay their people minimum wage, you know, and they should pay their people a living least, wage. You know, like yeah. that's another thing that's sort of coming up here is that it sounds like you couldn't pay uh, employees. Yeah, I think if you can't survive as a business, then you have to close your doors as a business and do some thinking about what your mission is and what you want to accomplish and how you can accomplish those things. And if that, if those, if the goals then are goals that nonprofit literary organizations have, then become a nonprofit literary organization. This feels to me like flailing about for a way to keep a bookstore alive because you want to have a bookstore and you, and you have ascribed some value to the existence of a bookstore and it's like shoehorning in other stuff. I don't, and I don't want to question his motives. It sounds like the community activities and the value that they're providing there. And like, they've donated a lot of money to classrooms and teachers. And um, this bookstore has, and that's wonderful. But it just, I, it, mm, the pieces don't seem like they need to go together this way. Yeah. Um, I, no, I don't know. I don't love it. And maybe, maybe uh, it'll be enough of a transformative moment that it really, the bookstore is just one little piece of this, a wider array of programming and projects like that. That that's the that that thing that that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. It's like I, some I one we have this building and this identity that you know we want to use to care about books in a public way, and so it's no longer about you know just bringing the cash register that you're going to try to do all these other things. Um, but it, it sounds like you know a 13 member board of directors to buy the bookstore, and uh, they need two hundred fifty thousand dollars to purchase a store. And maintain a large capital reserve to support its programs. Like, you know, if the community wants to spend its money that way, um, that's that's up to them. All right, mm-hmm. let's see. We got our we last, last sponsor, sponsor this week. So scribed. So summertime, you're reading a bunch of different types of things. We had a nice piece on the site this week about like this kind of deflating this idea of beach read. That mm-hmm. you know, like it's not really anything. Read what you want. But I think some people use their their vacation readings for different things than their normal kinds of reading. That's as general as I'm going to make it. Like me, I, I catch up on series that I've missed. So uh, I, I did uh, I did some Patrick Rothfuss. I'm doing the the Lev Grossman Magician Sing right now. Um, oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Yay. So anyway, anyway, um, I think Scribd. If you're that kind of person that want to try something else, or you're going to read a lot in the summer, it's 
a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks. So before we're going to talk to them more, but scribd.com slash bookwrite to get started with a free month that's 30 days, all you can read. Scribd has some books from the best publishers around, from big houses, SNS, HMH, HarperCollins, small presses like Tin House, McSweeney's, more than 30,000 audiobooks, including new release, front list titles from Penguin Random House. And you can find the books you're going to love there. There's hundreds of collections curated by their editors. They'll read, as you read, they'll tailor recommendations for you based on the books you've loved or haven't if you've given a one-star DNF. I don't think they have a DNF tag. Maybe we can tell our friends at Scribd to give us a DNF tag. Um, you could be, I mean, there's, we talked about Hemingway. There's Hemingway on there. Uh, there's audiobook. Salter. There's Salter on there. Is all of it on there? You can read uh, not all of it, but you can read A Sport and a Pastime and The Hunters that, and Solo Faces. There, there's two mm-hmm. of the three but we yeah, talked about favorites. right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah go, go get script because like the script, free month, it's cheaper than buying the audiobook of A Sport and a Pastime. It's eight ninety nine a month after your first month if you want to keep going with it. And it's unli- unlimited reading and listening the whole time. Audiobooks, especially if you if you're new to audiobooks, this is a great way to get started because you get your ebooks thrown in with it. If you haven't tried audiobooks that much, if you haven't tried say fiction, I'm a nonfiction audiobook listener, but you can try the other go with the other side of the the aisle is like. Um, also with audiobooks, the narrator really matters, and this is something I've learned, you know, over the last eighteen months that I've really become an, an audiobook freak, is that a book I could want to read, I'll turn it off if the narrator is bad. Because I, I'm mm-hmm. committing to 20 hours of listening to that. Um, there was one, I won't name names, where the narrator was so bad, but I realized there was another recording, and then I got that one, and it was just so much better. Night and day difference. But you know within 10 minutes if you want to commit to that narrator. I really think that's the way to go with scripts. You can try it that way, too. You can try a bunch of the different things, really expand your reading horizons uh, with Scribd. So thanks so much to Scribd. That's Scribd.com slash bookwrite, S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And Salters, are, that'll be our, our standalone pick for Scribd this week. And yet he's right there. Um, when you go to Scribd.com slash bookwrite, you'll see a selection of um, 15 of our favorite books that are available on Scribd. And A Sport and a Pastime is right there on the splash page. So you can check that out as well as a bunch of other favorites from all kinds of genres. All right. Tell me about some new books. Okay. We got new books. It's summer, so the new book mm. thing is slowing down a little bit for summer publishing. Uh, but uh, this is one of my favorite books of the year, and I almost missed it. So it worked out very well that I didn't. Uh, music for Wartime by Rebecca Mackay. It's a collection of short stories is out this week. Um, she's written two novels. I missed both of those, and I'm going to have to go back and read them now. This is a really lovely, haunting collection of stories that deal. Some of them are set during World War II. Um, many of them are set in contemporary uh, United States. They deal with music, with art. A lot of the characters are artists um, in some way. There are a few stories, um, uh, excuse me, specifically the World War II stories that have characters um, who share Mackay's last name. So she blurs that fiction, real life line in a way that I find to be really pleasant and intriguing as a reader to wonder, you know, what of this story is pulled from her real life. Um, Claire Vey Watkins did that some in Battleborn also, which I thought was really great. Uh, it's it's really beautiful uh, and just a little strange, which is a thing that if, uh, <laughs> if you listen to the show for a while, you know I love in, uh, in books, especially in short stories. Um, my favorite piece in the collection is about a woman who opens uh, her piano one day and there's a tiny Johann Sebastian Bach in it. <laughs> and he, hop, he hops out, Bach hops out of the piano and he eventually grows up to regular human size and is like on her, you know, it's like the 26th floor floor or something like that of her apartment building um, in New York, living in her apartment with her. Uh, <laughs> and he's afraid to, like, he's looking out the window. He's terrified of traffic and of being up so high, but he plays beautiful music for her and they communicate largely, you know, in like sign language and motioning at each other because he doesn't speak English. Um, and she has failed to get pregnant with her ex-husband. And so she's going to seduce Bach. <laughs> Whoa. It's it's so great. It was it was like a much smarter version of that movie with Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman where he comes back oh. from he's like Remember that? Yeah, where you like you have to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge to go back in yeah. time. That's a, yeah. that was weird. But it's Bach. Yeah. And it's Bach. Um there's another one about like a trout people from a traveling circus who are in a small town. Wait, trout people? Tr- no, oh, oh. traveling. Oh, traveling people. People 
Sorry, well, people you, from you the have traveling a little circus. Block, anything is possible. I don't know. It's true. Anything is possible. The elephant from this traveling circus dies while they're in this small town, and they're all stuck there trying to figure out what to do with the dead elephant. Meanwhile, there's a flood that lasts for like a biblical amount of time, and then. Uh, the people from the circus end up just like starting normal people lives in this town. Like the, you know, the former elephant trainer becomes the shopkeeper or whatever. Um, I'm really not doing it much justice. It's it's such a beautiful, interesting, weird collection. Uh, She wrote it over 13 years. And so you can sort of see the pieces come together and they, they share themes and echo each other in fascinating ways. Uh, It was my first experience reading Rebecca Mackay and I'm going to read everything else that she does from now until forever, probably. Uh, That's music for wartime. Keeping with the short stories theme, Margaret Atwood's collection from last year, Stone Mattress, is out in paperback this week. Um, And it is less weird on the scale than most Margaret Mm. Atwood is. Um, Mostly set in the real world, but just a few ticks off, if any ticks off at all. The title story is about a woman who's on a cruise in the Arctic. She's retired, and she realizes that the man who is hitting on her on the cruise um, is the same person who did a terrible thing to her many decades prior, and she gets her revenge while they're all out like walking around a glacier. Uh, it's great. I just love Margaret Atwood so much. And if you, uh, you know, have been needing to fill the Margaret Atwood shaped hole in your heart and your bookshelf since mm. the Mad Adam series, and you missed Stone Mattress last year, it's in paperback this week. All right. That's, Those are new that's our show. Uh, as always, you can find Thanks. show notes at com slash podcast. You can email us with, you know, your guess on how wrong I'm going to be about the great gray versus Ghost at a Watchman. Uh, Showdown at podcast at bookrat.com. You can follow me on Twitter at the Jeff O'Neill. O-N-E-A-L is my last name. You can follow Rebecca at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-S-K-Y. I'm off next week. I'm traveling back to Kansas to spend some time with family. Amanda's going to be sitting in for me. Uh, and uh, also you should go, if, if you like the new book section of our show, um, you should go check out Rebecca and Liberty's new show. Six episodes in now? Something like that. Eight. Eight. The eighth episode wow, will drop next week. Uh, all the books. Know, all flying. the books. You can find it on, on our show, on our site. Is it bookwrite.com slash all the books? Is that the URL? It is. And it's on iTunes as all yeah, the Yeah, if you can well. just search for it there, um, you can find it a uh, half hour every week talking about the new books. Uh, it's a really fun, great show. And people love it so far. You guys are doing a great job. So it's such a blast. That's it. We'll talk to you all later. Have a good week. <laughs>